Yesterday, when I arrived here, <clears throat> President Pusey um, said, you know, I've never been quite sure how to pronounce your first name, whether it should be Adlai or Adlai. And I thought afterward that of a verse that Mark Twain wrote when he was speaking on a platform with my grandfather in, I think it was in 1893, and the same subject arose. And he wrote it on a menu. And if my recollection is correct, it goes as follows. Philologists bray, but lexicographers say that his name is Adlai. <laughs> but at political picnics, when accents are high, fair Harvard's not present, and they call him Adlai. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like all politicians, I really don't care what you call me as long as you call me. So <laughs> this is David Brinkley. You have just heard a sample of the Stevenson wit. What follows is the best of the wit and humor of Adlai E. Stevenson, governor of Illinois, two-time candidate for president of the United States and ambassador to the United Nations. The Stevenson wit in this album was selected from his 1952 and 56 presidential campaigns, political dinners, commencement addresses, off-the-cuff remarks, and press conferences. We start on the campaign trail. Here is Adlai Stevenson, the Democratic nominee for president, speaking in Brooklyn, New York, in October 1952. Brooklyn has meant good fortune for Franklin Roosevelt, and good fortune for Harry Truman. In fact, it seems to have meant good fortune for practically everybody except the Dodgers. <laughs> Wait next year. And I'm confident that it'll mean good luck for me. I'll never forget the time during the war when I was traveling to the Brooklyn Navy Yard with the Secretary of the Navy behind a motorcycle escort, and we slowed down at a crowded corner, and I overheard somebody shout from the curbing, it must be damn bums. <laughs> I was never more flattered in my life. Now, as usual, my friends, the pre-election thunder comes from the Republicans. They control most of the nations at newspapers and magazines. They have the slickest slogans and the shiniest posters. They win most of the pre-election polls, and sometimes they win them in a gallop. It's not a very good pun, but it's the best I can <laughs> then, then the people will vote on Tuesday. I understand that on Wednesday, the newspapers plan to publish a five-star final. <laughs> <laughs> 
Many thousands of our votes will come from rank-and-file Republicans who will vote with us. No doubt some Democrats will vote for the Republican candidate. We have already, for example, traded a couple of Southern governors for the Senator from Wyoming and the Vice Chairman of the National Young Republicans. And I regard this as a profitable exchange for us. I would be happy to throw in a second baseman. But, but not Jackie Robinson. But let us not speak of the approaching Republican sorrow without compassion. You in Brooklyn, of all places, know how melancholy is the sound of the words, wait till next year. <laughs> As leader of the Democratic Party, both during and between his two presidential campaigns, Stevenson's attacks on his Republican opponents were invariably sharpened by his own kind of humor. The leaders of the Republican Party, President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon, were the favorite subjects of the Stevenson wit. The first is an excerpt from a speech before the New York State Democratic Convention in 1952, and the second was in 1954 at the Sioux Falls Coliseum. I've read the Republican platform, which is pretty good as a whodunit. But it doesn't tell us uh, what kind of a domestic or foreign policy we are going, they are going to change to. I've listened to the speeches too, and I don't yet know what legislation of the past 20 years is to be changed or changed to what. Nor have I heard yet to what new foreign policy we should be committed, unless it's the reckless suggestion of a war of liberation in Europe, which has frightened everyone except the Russians. No, the, the guideposts and the roadmaps to the new utopia which change will build are not yet visible. But meanwhile, the Republican candidates seem to have clasped all of the social gains of the past 20 years to their bosoms with a Me Too fervor that is touching to a Democrat. <laughs> For imitation still remains. All you distinguished candidates, whom I hope to call by other titles after the elections in November, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, and any wavering Republicans that happen to have dropped in. <laughs> Thank you, <clears throat> Senator. Humphrey, for your very gracious words. I'm proud and honored to be identified with the farmers. Speaking of identification, I wonder if you recall the story of a bitter political campaign that was waged out here many, many years ago, somewhere in the West, in the time of the Indian Troubles when one candidate charged the other with being 
part Indian. And he promptly replied by saying, my opponent says he isn't part Indian, and I believe him because the Indians deny it too. <laughs> I only hope, after what you said, to uh, Senator Humphrey, that the farmers don't deny this identification with them. <laughs> At least the farmers out here in South Dakota who have this peculiar eccentricity of voting Republican. <laughs> of, feeding, of feeding the hand that bites them, as the little boy said. <laughs> After the defeat in 1952, the Democratic Party's treasury was almost empty, and Stevenson dutifully appeared as the star attraction at fundraising dinners. This was a hundred-dollar-a-plate dinner the Democrats had in Los Angeles on February 26, 1953. Mr. Smith, Mr. Neeb, Mr. Ford, and distinguished guests, and my friends of Los Angeles. Having hearing that Mr. Smith was going to introduce me this evening, I had thought to say how very much I admired the discrimination of his newspaper, the Los Angeles Daily News, during the late campaign. <laughs> so, So few great newspapers supported me that I have not had occasion to say that very often. <laughs> but after his introduction and the remarkable virtues that he has attributed to me, of course, modesty forbids me to comment on his good judgment. <laughs> I've just come here from New York, Chicago, and Washington, Washington, D.C., which is now known in the East as Homburg Heaven. <laughs> and I must say to you that I have never seen a defeated party in such good spirits everywhere. That is, I've never seen one until I came to California. And here, I suppose that never before have so many paid so much for corned beef. <laughs> Especially after just being defeated. But I am happy to be here also because, as some of you know, I was born here. And because this time, I am not seeking your electoral votes or anything else. You have a way of treating us visitors, even your own grade B productions, like myself, so well that we often end by staying here. And it makes a good Illinoisian like myself a little uneasy. The more so when I recall that Horace Greeley, who uttered that sound bit of advice, go west, young man, was like myself, the victim of a presidential contest against a Republican general. <laughs> <laughs> but my friends, I'm taking 
Mr. Greeley at his word. I am going west, and I'm going on all the way around the world. I suspect that President Eisenhower, and more and more every day, envies me my trip. <laughs> However, as a number of political analysts have already pointed out, and the figures seem to verify, he has only himself to blame for winning the election. In 1952 and 56, Stevenson probably was the most famous bachelor in America. And despite the fact some people thought this a political handicap, he enjoyed joking about his marital status. Mr. Toastmaster, Mr. Chairman, and ladies and gentlemen, I think I have the answer to all of our perplexities here tonight. I found this letter on my desk just before I left Springfield, Illinois this afternoon. Honorable Governor Stevenson, sir. You should marry Mrs. Franklin D. Roosevelt, and you should run for the presidential nomination. <laughs> and put Mrs. Roosevelt on the ticket for vice president, and you will go over big. <laughs> now, I propose to send this message to Mrs. Roosevelt with the respectful comment that I think it an excellent idea. But after all, this is leap year. <laughs> I have always marveled at the ingenuity of certain members of the Fourth Estate in creating news. They even linked my name some time ago with Margot Truman's romantically. <laughs> but that was before we had met. <laughs> and since she met me, nothing else has appeared. <laughs> Between his first campaign in 1952 and his second in 56, Stevenson continued to speak for the Democrats. While they were out of power, he was their most eloquent voice. On Valentine's Day in 1953, he addressed a meeting of Democrats in New York City. It is now, my friends, some three months, nine days, 19 hours, and 47 minutes since we conceded the election of General Eisenhower. Watching the conduct of our party during that time, I can only say that I am prouder than ever to be a Democrat. <laughs> and that's my best Valentine. In that interval, General Eisenhower has had the honors of victory and also the misery, while I have had the miseries of defeat and a vacation. <laughs> but as the newspapers say, to the victor belongs the toil. <laughs> it seems to me very appropriate that the party with a heart should be having this great dinner here in New York on St. Valentine's Day. I'm sure that we Democrats are in a mood to love everybody. And of course, we'd be delighted if a few million more people would love us. 
I have questioned my qualifications to be speaking here this evening. My most recent distinction, after all, is the dubious one of being the first Democratic candidate defeated since Al Smith 24 years ago. <laughs> now, the new administration has been in office, in power, for 25 days. This is not a very long time, as we Democrats count time in office. <clears throat> and therefore, my friends, I don't believe what I hear murmured around the country, that it's time for a change. What you will hear next are selections from a variety of Stevenson's speeches. They are examples of American political wit at its best. I keep thinking of that wonderful cartoon I saw, perhaps some of you did the other day, the college beatnik with a beard carrying a sign, get out of Vietnam, and he encounters a girl on the campus, long hair and black pants, and she's carrying a sign that says civil rights. And he says to her, what are you, a nut or something? Don't you know that was last month? <laughs> After watching the Republican performance, his plea for more of the same reminds me of the remark of the great Samuel Johnson, Dr. Johnson, when he heard about the second marriage of a friend. He said, goodness, that certainly is a triumph of hope over experience. <laughs> a few days ago, when the president was asked what he thought of this kind of campaign, in a press conference, he said he hadn't heard about it. <laughs> but within 24 hours, and despite his earlier protestation that communism was not an issue in this campaign, he wrote Vice President Nixon expressing his gratitude and his admiration for Mr. Nixon's contribution to political enlightenment. <laughs> and yesterday, if you please, in his airport tour, the president himself found it in his heart, or in his script, to take up these themes himself. I have, Mr. Feinberg, as perhaps you know, spoken at many hundred-dollar-a-plate dinner around the United States, but this is the first time I've ever been invited to speak to a $250 dinner. <laughs> Uh, one of your number assured me before dinner, however, that this was not in the least unusual and that when General Marshall was your guest, it was a $500 affair. <laughs> but my adroit friend, Mr. Feinberg, promptly assured me that there were only half as many people. <laughs> I emphatically agree that politics should stop at the water's edge, but surely that should not prevent us from trying to pull Mr. Dulles back to dry ground. <laughs> it looks as though our Republican friends had not so much pursued democratic policies as been pursued by them. <laughs> when Senator Alvin Barkley took your seat for a brief period in the United States Senate some years ago, He's reputed to have said that 
You, Senator Cooper, owed everything to the Democratic Party because, after all, we had provided you with a wife and made you ambassador to India. <laughs> and I might say that everyone honors you for doing so well in both respects. <laughs> but I must say, the Republicans never did the same for me, sir. <laughs> I cannot pretend to be an expert in a subject as vast and as complex as ethics, which I am told by Dr. Finkelstein I'm supposed to talk about. But I can assure you, Doctor, that as an ex-politician, it is very flattering to be asked to discuss ethics. <laughs> it makes me shudder a little to think that I graduated from college 30 years ago last June, and how doddering and venerable the 30-year reunion classes looked to me at that time. If I looked to you the way they looked to me, I wouldn't vote for me. <laughs> I also remember my own grandfather's story about the time he was sent down to Kentucky to pacify some sort of a party dispute or rebellion. He told them in brief that they, to get together. And they told him in brief that the last time they got together, it took four deputy sheriffs to separate them. I'm very glad to be here in Connecticut tonight. I first came here to school, not far from Hartford, about 35 years ago, as a small, and a shy Midwestern boy. I see by the press I'm still small, but I don't think a politician is shy. I've attended too many conventions not to know how you are all beginning to feel here on the afternoon of the third day. I know that you work hard at Legion business most of the day and then devote the balance of your time <clears throat> to the museums, <clears throat> the art galleries, the concerts, and the other cultural monuments of New York. To those who say that a limited quarantine was too much, in spite of the provocation and the danger, let me tell you a story attributed, like so many of our American stories, to Abraham Lincoln about the passerby out in my part of the country who was charged by a farmer's ferocious boar. He picked up a pitchfork and met the boar head on. It died, and the irate farmer denounced him and asked him why he didn't use the blunt end of the pitchfork. And the man replied, why didn't the boar attack me with his blunt end? The last time I was in this room, was in May of nine, uh, 10 years ago of 1942 with my beloved and celebrated boss at that time, Colonel Frank Knox, the then Secretary of the Navy. He made a much better speech to you at that time than I will today. And I know because I wrote both of them. <laughs> Good evening. I am speaking tonight from a studio in Chicago, just two weeks before the election. 
And on the eve of my departure, early tomorrow morning, for a final campaign trip through the Middle West and the Northeast. This campaign has been long, and it's been tiring. I sometimes feel like the man who, when asked how his invalid mother-in-law was getting along, said, well, she's still sick. And I sure wish she'd get well or something. In September, the polls begin to worry them a little. So they accuse us of talking over people's heads. They even accuse us, oh yes, and they even accuse us of having a sense of humor. been subjected to the solemn charge that I am being too funny, and at other times I have been accused of being too intellectual and somber. I shall, I shall have to let you judge whether I am too prone <clears throat> to invite people to laugh or weep. Both, in my judgment, are good for the spirit, and I hope... <laughs> And I hope the Republicans don't contemplate any legal prohibitions against it. There is always the tendency to mistake the particular interest for the general interest. To suppose, in the immortal thought recently uttered before a committee of Congress, that what is good for General Motors is good for the country. <laughs> there is always the possibility that the successor of the New Deal will turn out after the fine words have faded away to be the big deal. While the New Dealers have all left Washington to make way for the car dealers, <clears throat> I am, I hasten to say that I for one do not believe the story that the general welfare has become a subsidiary of General Motors. <clears throat> one of the most curious and persistent myths of democratic society is that political figures have anything important or interesting to say. <laughs> Especially when they are out of office. <laughs> I wonder if all of these alarming concerns are not America's surface symptoms of something even deeper, of a moral and a human crisis in the Western world, which might even be compared to the fourth, fifth, sixth century crisis when the Roman Empire was transformed into feudalism and primitive Christianity, early Christianity, into the structure of the Catholic Church, or the crisis a thousand years later when the feudal world exploded and the individual emerged with new relationships to God, to nature, to society. Sometimes I rather wonder if that sentence sounds as wise in Columbia as it did on the farm when I wrote it. <laughs> Even in defeat, Adlai Stevenson kept a graceful sense of humor. Here he is conceding the election of Mr. Eisenhower in 1952. Someone asked me as I came in down on the street how I felt. And I was reminded of a story that a fellow townsman of ours used to tell, <clears throat> Abraham Lincoln. And they asked him how he felt once. 
after an unsuccessful election. We want Ashley! He said, he said he felt like a little boy who had stubbed his toe in the dark. That it, that he was too old to cry, but it hurt too much to laugh. <laughs> And in 1956, he conceded again. I say to you all everywhere to be of good cheer. And remember, my dear friends, what a wise man said a long time ago, a merry heart doeth good like the medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. And as for me, let there be no tears if I lost an election. I want a grandchild. Adlai Stevenson enjoyed the company of newspaper men, even though he did not have the support of most of the press during his campaigns for president. He was in good form when he spoke to a gathering of the press on June 26, 1961, after he returned from a trip to South America. Mr. Chairman and ladies and gentlemen, I hope you don't know my qualifications for this trip. <laughs> Perhaps I should have said, um, ladies and gentlemen and fellow Democrats, this is a more agreeable reception than I ever expected to get at the press club. <laughs> and I also <clears throat> didn't overlook the delicacy and the potential value of your introduction of the law firm. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> The time may come, boys, when we'll have to go back to work. <laughs> I have successfully uh, evaded the press club um, for a, a good many years, and this time you caught me by cable. It's bad enough to um, be exposed to the United States press and uh, all of the experts on any given area <clears throat> of public um, interest. But here today, I have not only the press, but also Senator Wayne Morse, <laughs> who probably knows more about Latin America than I shall ever know. Congressman Thomas Morgan, before whose committee I'm about to appear at 2.30 this afternoon if I get out of here alive. <laughs> and the ambassadors of all of the countries that I have just visited, including, finally, my old and esteemed friend who honors me by his presence here today, uh, Dr. Munoz Marine, uh, governor of Puerto Rico. And finally, I have even uh, two um, Illinois colleagues, Arthur Goldberg and Ed Day. Do you know, I, I came home, I had thought when I came home that things were a little confused in Latin America. But when I came back to find that um, the maritime unions were turning down the Secretary of Labor's attempt to avoid using the Taft-Hartley Act, and the president uh, was proceeding to invoke it after I assume getting the advice of Arthur Goldberg, I can only report that the affairs of Latin America are in pretty good shape. 
I'm reminded of the distinguished scholar on this trip, one of the nine presidents of Uruguay, who said to me, um, <laughs> after we had concluded an afternoon of conversation with the collegium that governs that uh, country, he said, um, Governor Stevenson, if you feel a little bit depressed, just remember the, what a great Spanish writer once said. He said that um, Spaniards can settle all of the problems of the world, except their own country. <laughs> maybe, maybe it wasn't a Spanish writer after all. <laughs> and just before I left on this journey, at the instance of the president, I went to a big dinner in New York, and um, Bob Hope was there, and he turned and said, uh, um, uh, my friend Abdi Stevenson is about to uh, uh, leave for South America to visit our friends, and he'll be back the same day. <laughs> well, I, well, I want to assure you that that is not the case, that our friends were very friendly, and it took me 18 days to get home. I remember very well a year ago, plus when I made a long trip around Latin America, um, listening to a amusing speech by one of its accomplished um, uh, diplomats, leaders, the foreign minister of one of the countries, uh, one of the republics of Latin America, who said, you know, in the old days you had a um, policy called the good neighbor policy. Well, we like that because we always thought of uh, you as the neighbors and we as the good. <laughs> Shortly after the Bay of Pigs disaster in 1962, a national magazine suggested Ambassador Stevenson had fallen out of favor with President Kennedy. The article caused an uproar, and Stevenson referred to it at a dinner where President Kennedy was the guest of honor. I am <clears throat> pleased to be introduced here tonight by my old friend from Illinois, Sergeant Schreiber, because he is the world's best salesman. <laughs> he is selling instant peace. And it is so successful that nations cry for it. <laughs> the UN may cry for it very soon. As for me, I've been crying for it for the past week. <laughs> but despite, Mr. President, all that has happened, I'm convinced that um, most of the press of this country follow Joseph Pulitzer's admonition, his remark, that accuracy is to a newspaper what virtue is to a lady. <laughs> Except, as someone pointed out, a newspaper can always print a retraction. The third annual Eleanor Roosevelt Award Dinner in New York City on April 12, 1962, was the setting for one of the most delightful Stevenson speeches. Most happy to see so many old friends 
here present to thank you, Mr. Schultz, for presenting me this distinguished honor that my old and dear friend Dory Sherry should have presided and that Mrs. Cudler, whose name I like a good deal, should have been... <laughs> should, should have had such kind things to say about me. And most of all, I think I'm touched and gratified beyond measure by the presence here on this occasion of such memorable importance to me of my beloved old friend and fellow in arms, Herbert Lehman. I might say he did his gallant best on many occasions to keep me from being disarmed. <laughs> and as for you, Dory, after all of your kindness, I must say again what I have said to you before, and that is that there's nothing I won't do for you except run for president again. <laughs> well, I hope I've made it clear that I'm deeply grateful for this award and for all of these handsome compliments, because I know uh, what friendly feelings underlie them. And these I return in full measure. Sort of feel like the man who said he didn't mind a little praise as long as it was fulsome. <laughs> I was going to say I felt a little like Miss America at her finest hour. <laughs> I wonder if you remember that um, story of the that um, essay about the average Englishman that appeared in The Economist um, some 25 years ago during the, after the famous abdication crisis was over. All of the press, the cabinet ministers, the archbishops had poured out tributes to the splendid, was the word qualities of steadfastness, of forbearance, of dignity and wisdom displayed by the ordinary British people at that time. This flood of praise was modestly acknowledged in an essay signed by a symbolic, as I recall, Mr. Smith, who seemed somewhat dazed by it all. I feel a bond of intimate friendship with this gentleman. <laughs> And then he ended by admitting, I am both temporal and spiritual to the only possible conclusion that for some reason, which I don't quite grasp myself, I am splendid. <laughs> that mammy wagon that I saw in Ghana or some West African country once. 
You know those, those they always have um, uh, legends uh, painted on them. They come roaring down the street, and this one said, the Lord is my shepherd, and I don't know why. <laughs> I was speaking the other day in Washington um, to the Foreign Service Association. I was reminded, perhaps by the presence of so many diplomats, that um, of a remark that Disraeli made one time that seems to me peculiarly appropriate at this moment, when um, a young, callow, new member of the House of Commons came to him and said, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, do you think I should uh, participate actively in the debates and he gave him an appraising glance and said, no, young man, I don't think you should. I think it would be better for people to wonder why you didn't talk rather than why you did. Adlai Stevenson enjoyed his role as an elder statesman of the Democratic Party, and although he was no longer an active candidate, nothing pleased him more than reminiscing with his fellow Democrats and talking politics. This speech was recorded in New York City. I must say about Norman Thomas that I was told that he was invited to this party this evening and sent a letter which said that they are giving the award this year to a political amateur who has only run twice for the presidency. <laughs> Once upon a time, I discussed the question of audiences with the greatest orator of them all, I think, Alban Barclay. <clears throat> and he said to me, Adley, when I said, what is the ideal audience? He said, Adley, I've, I know the answer to that question. The ideal audience is one that is intelligent, that is well-educated, and just a little drunk. <laughs> well, as I look around, it's obvious that you're intelligent and well-educated, but, <laughs> but as to the rest, I don't know. I suspect the diagnosis is conflicting, which has always been a happy characteristic of the Democratic Party, <laughs> recently adopted by the Republicans. An evening like this, <clears throat> you will acknowledge, is heady stuff, even for an old hand. After all, after all the wit and wisdom and gaiety and blithe joy that I have heard and witnessed here this evening, I wonder what I can say to you. I feel a little like the fellow, the gambler who was going to the racetrack, who said, uh, gee, I hope I split even today. I need the money. <laughs> but after all, <laughs> what is the use of being in public life if you don't get a public testimonial once in a while, especially when you have had a couple of rather convincing adverse testimonials. I was reminded the other day, only yesterday as a matter of fact, by a, a visitor here from abroad who said that he had, uh, curiously enough, had the opportunity to hear me lecture to the students at the University of Chicago once in um, many years past, and when I concluded, he said, I witnessed something I have uh, never seen in more disciplined German universities. I uh, saw a student jump up in the back of the room and shout at the top of his voice, every thinking person will vote for Governor Stevens. And he said, do you remember what you said, Governor? And I said, no, sir, I don't even remember the occasion. And he said, you said, thank you very much. 
but I would prefer to have the majority vote for me. <laughs> well, <clears throat> some countries, I think, do this business of public flattery rather better than ours. They, uh, they don't leave the flattery of their leaders to chance. I'm told that down in South Africa, the paramount chief of the Transkei is furnished with an aide, of course, at tax expense, who has the title of official praiser. It's his duty at all times to see that the chief is properly appreciated, to nod and to smile and to applaud while the paramount chief is speaking. And I'm told uh, recently that in uh, Ghana that uh, President Nkrumah has a couple of fellows running along in front of him, usually in costume, shouting, oh, savior. Oh, deliverer, oh, father of our country. Funny, I've never seen any of that sort of thing in my political life. <laughs> in this country, a man has to depend on his wife for this kind of reassurance. I'm not sure that that's an ideal arrangement either, especially if you don't have a wife. I remember Congressman Boggs, Hale Boggs, whom many of you know, who, by the way, blessed with one of the most chanting popular and pretty wives in Washington, uh, Lindy, who told me um, that he made a speech one night at the uh, Democratic uh, Women's Club in Washington when she was president. And on the way home, uh, after his, uh, the, uh, he naturally got a great ovation, he said, uh, oh, riding home, well, dear Lindy, um, I guess there aren't too many great men in the world, are there? And Lindy said, uh, no, dear, there aren't. And moreover, there's one less than you think. <laughs> I must say, as I sat here tonight, listening to Arthur and all of these people who have contributed so much to my, my brief moments on our national stage, watching you replay my inspiring life, I thought of a time that a reporter cornered um, some, I think it was, perhaps you could help me, Betty, perhaps it was John Barrymore, and asked, if you had your life to lead over, sir, do you think you'd make the same mistakes again? And Barrymore said, certainly, but I'd start sooner. <laughs> That was the way with me. When I was a boy, I was told anybody could be president, and unfortunately, I believed it. <laughs> Speaking of the presidency, I suppose I ought to uh, remind you of a little-known story about Calvin Coolidge. It's always comforted me. Near the end of his term, he was quietly strolling near the White House with an old senatorial friend who pointed at the building and said jokingly, I wonder who lives there. And Coolidge said, nobody. They just come and go. <laughs> well, that's the way it is. For unsuccessful candidates for the presidency also, they just come and go. Mencken once proposed and, uh, that uh, they be quietly hanged <laughs> as a matter of public sanitation and decorum. <laughs> Nowadays, we don't hang them. Nothing quick and merciful like that. 
Instead, we send them to the United Nations, <laughs> where oblivion is neither quick nor merciful. But there are worse places. There must be. <laughs> After he was appointed ambassador to the United Nations by President Kennedy, Stevenson was called on to make numerous speeches at college commencements around the country. The two speeches you are about to hear were by Ambassador Stevenson at Williams College and Harvard University shortly before his death in July of 1965. President Sawyer, <coughs> graduates, faculty, friends of Williams College and my fellow doctors. You know, I can live, uh, President Sawyer, for two months on a good introduction. <clears throat> and on that citation, I think I can live for the rest of my life. <laughs> I did some homework before coming to Williams today, and among other things, I consulted one of your alumni. But I can't remember who it was, which makes me feel like the professor he told me about, and I remember the story, who hotly denied that he was as absent-minded as his uh, reputation suggested. Actually, there are only three things I can't remember, he said. I can't remember names, I can't remember faces, and I can't remember the third thing I can't remember. <laughs> All truisms, unfortunately, tend to be echoes and a little boring. So I should, if I could, like to bore you young graduates today, not to extinction, but to distinction. I should like to help you young graduates attain that peculiar grace that Browning wrote about, of learning how to live before living. But of course I can't. So I have concluded to follow Mark Twain's recommendation. You recall that he said to do good is noble. To tell others to do good is also noble and much less trouble. <laughs> and now, if you should ever remember your commencement speaker at all, perhaps you will be as charitable as the student who said, yes, it was a good speech. He could have done a lot worse if he'd had a little more time. I'm most grateful to you for the honor that Harvard has done me to attempt to express my thanks with becoming dignity and with the fervor that I feel would be hazardous. I couldn't but think of a story of an old minister whose congregation presented him an automobile in recognition of his long and faithful service to the parish. Overcome with emotion, the elderly minister struggled to his feet and stammered out, I don't appreciate it, but I certainly deserve it. <laughs> I think even more hazardous, however, is to attempt to speak to this austere Harvard audience. I wonder if a Princeton man was ever in such a predicament before. I suppose it's either shameless vanity or else I can't resist the temptation to speak to an audience where there is no right of reply. 
We have heard from Mr. Schwartz that the Alumni Association was founded in 1840. But I should like to pay tribute also to the year 1940 and to the class of 1940, not only for its generosity, but because it included one of Harvard's most notable sons, to whom all of us, and especially I, pay warm and affectionate tribute, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I, I deeply appreciate the degree of, the, of Doctor of Laws that you have conferred upon me now that I have stopped practicing law. <laughs> Last Sunday, Williams College gave me a Doctor of Letters. Happily, I could assure them that there was no danger of my uh, taking it seriously and writing anymore, since I asked one of my sons if he had read my last book, and he replied, I hope so. <laughs> Someone referred to me today as a battle-scarred veteran. Well, I should like to say that after that luncheon at the Fogg Museum, I'm not sure whether it is battle-scarred or bottle-scared. <laughs> now, I was cautioned very, before I came here, that I should not try your patience too long. So I suppose that I must talk and you must listen. I do hope we both finish our work at about the same time. 